Hey, hey, here with Everald Compton, who I had an in-person conference and meeting with on Monday. Everald was down in Sydney uh, with for bigger fish to fry than talking to me, of course, but he generously stopped by and had a chat. But we're back on digital again, back podcasting. So how are you, Ev? Well, I'm good, and I really enjoyed the hour we had having a quiet drink and discussing the, uh, the affairs of the world, which we'll do whenever I'm in... Sydney, or if ever you get to Brisbane, that you know that'll be a a a, a good thing. Well, look, look, let's let's uh, you know blaze, blaze away on uh, uh, the big issues down there. Now, the one, of course, which is absorbing the headlines of the world is is the situation in uh, Israel, Palestine, Gaza. What's your view of it at the moment? Looking at the world, not looking at the impact politically here in Australia. That's uh, well, we can mention that later, but how do, you, how do you see the conflict at this point, James? The, the, the latest thing we've heard out of it is that Netanyahu won't agree to a ceasefire unless all the hostages are freed, all the hostages which um, the, the Hamas took from October 7. And um, it's very, very worrying in terms of the hopes for a civilian ceasefire. We had, um, I think, 20-odd Australians be let out of Gaza by the Rafa crossing through Egypt on the 20th um, because Egypt opened mm. up their border a little bit. But the human toll is just growing and growing. I think according to the UN um, High Commissioner for Children or whatever they're called, uh, like one child is being killed in Gaza every 10 minutes by these um, these strikes and that. And obviously, look, I, I don't intend to say a child's life is more important than an adult's. Every civilian life lost is an absolute tragedy. But I think in terms of the barbarism of what's going on, it's just so crushingly sad that so many innocent civilian lives in Gaza are being lost because of Israel strikes. One child... Well, well, let's, well let's look at the reason for it. I don't believe that Netanyahu's purpose is to, to release the hostages. I don't think that personally he could care two hoots about the hostages. That's an excuse. Netanyahu's political future is on the line. He was in charge of the country when their security system failed badly to detect all these Hamas groups about to come over the border. They were glaringly obvious they were coming over. He's had a very shaky rule, and then perhaps his 10-year rule of Israel is the worst 10 years in the whole history of Israel now. He's fighting this war to save his own political hide. He's trying to say to the Israel people, this awful thing's up, and I net know you were going to save you. He couldn't hear two hoots about the hostages. That's just his excuse. I believe with net know you, we're dealing, if I want to use uh, crude language on public things, we're really with one, we're looking at one of the big bastards of my lifetime. And this is all about saving his hide, mate. I completely agree, and there's a bunch of evidence towards that point. First of all, apparently the families of the hostages who've been taken are saying, let's do a ceasefire, let's allow civilians to get out, because I think the families of hostages, of all people, probably have a lot of empathy for the innocent Gazans who are being killed in this, yeah. because they're in similar situations um, to you know their friends and family, being caught up in the middle of an, a, a conflict which is really between like you say, Netanyahu, and a terrorist group, which Netanyahu is using for his political future. Netanyahu was deposed and charged a couple of years ago, and there was a coalition government from all spectrum of the political um, world in his place, but they just couldn't hold it together. And Netanyahu, who bigs himself up as Mr. National Security, was able to 
beat the corruption allegations by, I think, doing more corruption and has since yeah. changed the court so he can't get caught for any more corruption. So he's, yeah. Yeah, but I think there's a whole lot of issues. There's no such thing as uh, being able to protect people when a war started. I mean, when a war starts, it starts. And one of the cunning things that Hamas does and that Hezbollah does in the north is that they position their terrorists in places where there are a lot of civilians so that it's very hard for them to be found. They don't have camps of their own anywhere. They do harbour themselves in hospitals and schools and public buildings as a neat way of saying, to get us, you've got to kill a lot of people on the way. So I think Hamas has got to take pop something for this because when Israel hit the hospital the other day, even the United Nations announced that there were Hamas blokes in the basement of the hospital. And so people are going to get killed while there has to be a ceasefire. Yes. And I believe the United States has been appallingly weak, as they have been in Ukraine, in doing something about it. I think this the other thing out of this. We're seeing the end of the United States as a world power that they let the situation in Ukraine out of hand, they let the situation here out of hand. Now, they're, in fact, gutless, and we've signed a treaty with these gutless guys called AUKUS. Okay. Um, I suppose a couple of things to unpack there. Um, the first is that, and I, I, I'm not suggesting you're saying this to be clear, but it's absolutely right that Hamas sets themselves up amongst civilian populations. But let's not pretend Israel is trying to be particularly judicious in only targeting Hamas commanders or whatever. They're absolutely. I agree. I agree. I, I, they'll, they'll hit anybody. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's uh, and I, I don't think uh, it, it's sort of an inherent contradiction in what Israel's doing that they're saying they could weed out all these Hamas commanders and are only hitting civilian targets that have Hamas commanders around, and yet this same national security apparatus who can apparently weed out all these secret underground Hamas commanders is the same one that got super breached three weeks ago. And when Hamas came over the border, you know, to the shock and awe of everyone. Um, so I don't think the Israel security apparatus is as, uh, as sophisticated as it wants to let on in terms of figuring out who and who is not a civilian. They're striking everyone indiscriminately and it's horrible. They blew up an ambulance convoy just recently. Um, it's horrible. About the US though, um, I know, like we we disagree on what the US's role should have been in Ukraine. You think they should have taken a more active military role? I think it should have been restricted to just aid, and funding, and training, like they're doing. Um, with Israel, it's a similar thing. Like I I don't intend to go into it because we got to move on. But everyone knows the US and Israel are best buddies, or rather, the US will always go in bat for Israel on the international stage. So even Biden calling for restraint, for example was something you would have never heard out of Obama, out of Trump, out of Bush, out of Clinton. Um, so America has not gone far enough. And yet they've actually gone the furthest America ever has in condemning Israel, which really says a lot, I think. But I think you wanted to say something about Ukraine more broadly, do you not? Know? Oh, well, let's just, just, we'll go to Ukraine in a minute. But just, just where is this going to end? There is no way that Netanyahu is going to have this pause that Biden wants. Biden's romancing if he thinks it. Netanyahu can't back off now, otherwise his political hide has gone. So we've got to presume that the Israeli army is going to keep going till it controls all of the Gaza Strip and presumably has weeded out the Hamas guys they can find. 
I, I think they'll find the Hamas guys disappear over the border to Iran somewhere and 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 and, and regroup. So there is not going to be a ceasefire. Now, when it's all over, Netanyahu has said he wants Palestine to run Gaza because he doesn't want to run it. And, and Palestine has said, well, we're not going to run Gaza unless you declare us to be a nation. And it could be that the United States and others say to Netanyahu the price of, of, of getting peace is that you've got to make Palestine a separate nation. And the UN will place troops along the border until this whole thing settles down. We've got to look at how is this going to end, and it's only going to end when Netanyahu conquers all of Gaza and there's got to be some peace settlement at that point. He's not going to stop. No, I um, I completely agree. He, he's a bloodthirsty maniac. Let's make no no two ways about it. Um, I think <laughs> we both agree there. Um, <laughs> so... And, so it's, and so what we've got to be looking at now is the scenario. How do we bring peace to this region? And above all, at last, how do the Palestinian people be declared a nation in their own right that's mm-hmm. not under Israeli control? And maybe that will be the big flaw in Netanyahu, where he has to back down over that, and that'll be the end of his political uh, career. And let's have, so move on to Ukraine. Everybody's forgotten about him in the last uh, couple of weeks. I understand Russia has increased its lobbying, lobbying rockets on him. They're still keeping up with their offensive, going very slowly at Ukraine, and the winter is about to come, and I think we're going to have another deadlock over winter where they'll just be sniping at one another across the border, and nothing will have advanced in the cause of finishing that war in Ukraine. And somehow or other, Biden has got to step in, and well, the whole of EU, the war has got to be stopped in Ukraine. Yeah. Nobody's yeah, I mean, going to win it. Neither side is going to win it. You, you, you think it's going to, it's sort of petering out is the wrong word because lives are still being lost in droves, but you think in terms of territorial gains and losses, the war is going to peter out to a stalemate. Exactly. It's going to peter out. And, and so there's a, there is a massive uh, problem there that's got to be, uh, that, that, that's got to be sorted out. And so we live in a happy situation one of the things that I was at the, the function, the opening of the Benelong headquarters, where 300 of the top executives in, in Sydney were there, really impressive. But you couldn't get into the place. I got in simply because I was the father of one of the directors, but you couldn't get in otherwise unless you're the head of a big company. And the general concern there was not panic in any way, was you can't have a war in Ukraine, you can't have a war in the Middle East without the whole world economy being affected in some way. It will push inflation up as one, you know, inevitable thing. If the Arabs decide to take their revenge by putting the, the fuel prices up, uh, they could damage the world economy, uh, you know, greatly. And so uh, the, the, the big thing out of this is not just stopping bloodshed there, but is the world economy and therefore the lives and jobs of people going to go into some sort of inflationary mode some sort of cash flow mode whatever what's your view i mean not to um harp on what may seem like an irrelevant issue but this is a real trick we missed in not sort of 20 30 40 50 years ago really trying to make our economy a lot greener a lot quicker in terms of electric cars public transport 
and better city infrastructure where you could walk or bike around. Because in car-dependent societies, this looming threat of fuel price rises whenever there is global instability is always around the corner. And it's a real own goal by the entire world. Because if, if we had sort of greened up earlier and reduced our dependency on fossil fuels, it would not be as big of a problem. Yeah, but all my life, mate, the world has worked out 50 years later what they should have done 50 years before. <laughs> now, James, I, I sold my car. We, we're not a two-car family now. We're a one-car family. I sold my car for the good of the economy. Have you sold your car, James? We, we only have one car. We're a one-car family. <laughs> and I only really take it from cricket. Um, well, I, 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 I thought that was your answer. What I'm saying is the best way to fix something is for everybody to start becoming a one-car household and start using public transport yes. we'll get somewhere. Well, look, we can, time, time moves on. Can we get back to Australia? And the need, as you know, I mentioned on a previous program, that the voice referendum proved, as the Republican referendum did in 1998 or whenever it was, that trying to alter the Australian Constitution piece by piece is a hopeless uh, task and... and uh, we need to have a totally new constitution for Australia. Now, this will take years to achieve. And it would have to be done with massive public consultation, which wasn't done with voice. There was great consultation amongst Indigenous people, 3% of our population, as to what they were requesting of Australia. But the other 97% were just told to vote for it. They didn't have a say in what the wording was going to be. There was no town hall meetings to discuss, are these the right questions? We had meetings afterwards saying, will you please vote for these questions? And one of the reasons was there was no, uh, I think, a major issue in that we had nothing to do with racism, with no consultation. So with a new constitution, every aspect of it would have to be the subject of town hall meetings all over Australia where people had an input before you even put pen to paper on the constitution and got uh, and got something around. We take it in, in bits. And, and, uh, and so uh, I, I think that one of the first things to do in uh, setting up to write a new constitution would be for every community in Australia to be able to appoint a, a constitutional committee and then as each aspect comes up, communities all over Australia discuss each one. So that by the time you get to a referendum, people feel that they had an involvement in it. The 97% of the population who were non felt they didn't have a say in how the wording was going to be in that. And so I think it could be a great thing for Australia to have constitutional discussions right across the country as part of it. How do you feel? I mean, to, to make it abundantly clear, I, as we've discussed multiple times, I vehemently disagree with your take on why voice failed. I think it's um looking at it through the wrong lens to say white fellows should have had a say in the wording because the whole point of why we were where we were is white people telling Indigenous people top down what they think is better for them. But we've relitigated that probably seven times on this show now, and I don't think our listeners yeah, want to hear it. Yeah, but moving on to... Wrong... For the wrong reasons, though, mate. You can't... It, referendums are about politics. It wasn't about principles of this or that. You had to get the votes of the 97% to do it. So a bit of humble pie was needed to say, let's consult with those blokes. 
about the wording beforehand because we want them to vote for us. It was a matter of politics, yeah. Uh, uh, again, I, I d disagree on several levels as to why it failed. But again, we've talked about that before. I don't think the listeners want to um, hear it again. And I don't think um, we should give Peter Dutton's quote-unquote victory lap again. But um, the... Um, he he of, didn't have a victory lap. He lost, man. Dutton lost. I know. Be quite I know. Um, but he <laughs> feels like he won because he's a dreadful human being and hates change. Um, now, the um, in terms of constitutional committees, I think, and I think we touched on this on our last show, um, one of the big problems to my mind on that front is we're a nation of apathy now. We're not the same nation of visionaries and nation builders that Edmund Barton and Sir Samuel Griffith and that were working yeah. with when yeah. they formed their constitution. Yeah. And I think the big evidence of that is like the big decline in membership of political parties themselves, be they yeah. Labor, Liberal or the Greens. Now, I know the Teal movement, for example, got a lot of people excited and did get a lot of community involvement. But broadly, as a population, we're still a population who hates being involved in government in the sense of, we hate getting out there, being involved in discourse, being involved in um, public responsibility and that sort of thing. So I think the biggest hurdle is that apathy thing where if, if you had this going on, the only people who would really at least initially be interested are the same people who are already into politics. Um, like, and you and I, you know, we sit here and talk about politics and the world and every Saturday morning, we're into politics. But I think a, a, a huge chunk of this country really has no interest in, um, I, I won't say has no interest in making the world a better place because that's not true, but has no interest in like the devotion of time and energy and effort into civic life in that same way. And I think that's a real hurdle and it's a hurdle that the Bartons and the Griffiths and that didn't necessarily have to face back in 1898 when they were doing their conventions. Well, well, that's true, but I think it would depend upon the way in which communities set up things. If you just put on a meeting and say, look, we, we're going to have regular meetings to discuss the Constitution, will you come along? Two and a dog will turn up and the dog will be the most enthusiastic. The, the, local, the, the local member of parliament has got to pinpoint all the key leaders, not the politically, the key leaders of society everywhere, and go to them and say, I want you to come to this and please come along and please get involved. People would have to come by by being asked, not by being saying, will you turn up? And and I think it all depends on which we uh, go about it. But I believe that it would be a total waste of time for some academics to draw up a constitution and say to the Australian people, will you vote for this? It's brilliant. They will vote no like they did for voice because they weren't consulted about it. And I think we've got to have a consultation progress, process, process that goes on for years before we ever ask them to vote. So it starts to become part of the folklore of the country that this is uh, going to happen. I mean, again, I, I think you're right, albeit then um, one of the other problems is one of the things people said about the voice campaign was that it was too long because, again, people hate politics. If it were up to your average Australian, you would probably have no election campaign You'd show up on election day, you'd pull a lever, and then you'd go home. Um, I think that there's just a real reticence in this country to be involved in civic life. Uh, I think personally that's not a great thing. Other people may disagree because, of course, for a lot of people, um, you know, for some people, um, politics is like a matter of life and death, quite literally. 
um, for other people who are fairly comfortable, um, their lives don't really change much depending on what's in the constitution, who the government is, who the ministers are, etc. For a lot of people, um, that's all superfluous. And I, I, I don't know what it would really take to mobilise the community in that well, regard. I think, I, I, I think it can be done. If you, My experience of organising things for 70 years now out in public life is there's a way to get people involved that they won't naturally get involved in. With the voice thing last year, people knew they were about to vote on something and that was what was wrong. They're not being asked to come along to say something, you're going to vote on this now. You're forming something that's going to be, be come years later. You're not coming along to decide how you're going to vote. You're coming along to have a yarn about what's going to be in this thing, which is a totally different thing to will you vote on it. But uh, you, you and I, uh, every next week I'd like to start the constitutional debate on does Australia, if we have a new constitution, does Australia need two houses of parliament? Does it need a house of reps and a senate? And I think it only needs one. And so we'll gear up on that because that's one that could cause an enormous amount of debate around the country when that's put up. Now, tell me, who's your good guy of the week this time, James? Um, my good guy of the week this week is, um, it's look, it's Albo, and it's for a very specific reason, because it's certainly not for his cowardice on the Gaza issue and his refusal to really full-throatedly condemn Israel. In fact, this week, I could probably have Albo in my good and bad guys of the week column, because Albo is one of the um, setter-upperers of the parliamentary Friends of Palestine and before becoming Prime Minister was a vocal supporter of the Palestinian people. So he could probably wind up in, a, in the bad guy column for that. But he's in the good guy column this week for he's going to China. He's going to have a powwow with Xi Jinping. Um, and look, Albo has, I think, in recent months, uh, fallen short on a couple of key issues, uh, especially like the, the tax cuts and now Palestine. But the one big thing Albo has really, really done stabilised our relationship with China and made me a lot less afraid of um, Morrison's and Peter Dutton's sort of drums of war, um, sinophobic, racist, McCarthyist attitudes towards China. Albo has done a bit to level that out. He could still do more. He could rip up the AUKUS deal, for example. But he's doing, he's doing good things and he's kicking goals on the stabilising relationship with China front. That's great for our economy and it's great for imports, exports. So good on you, Albo, and all the best in China. Well, I, I wish Albo well on his way to China. I agree that he's made a few moves, and one, the, the way in which Voice was even organised was just awful. But, but, but uh, he's going over into a situation where Morrison did his best to stuff up our relationship with China. In fact, some of the things he did were not just insulting, they were cold-blooded stupid. So Albo's got a lot of ground to make up, and I hope he can make some headway. I wish him well, and I remember fondly how I clapped and cheered when Gough Whitlam went there 50 years ago and was the guy who opened up our relationship with China, for which he's never been given a you know a great uh, uh, you know great go. So, so uh, uh, you know I, I I wish him well. Now I, I want to say my good guy of the week is. It's Bill Hayden. Now, now Bill, we, we buried Bill uh, yesterday. I wasn't at the funeral. It was up in Ipswich. But Bill Hayden, uh, former Treasurer of Australia, former Foreign Minister of Australia, former Governor General of Australia, one of the finest uh, politicians I met, uh, 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 Bill Hayden, and I got to know him pretty well during his time. But there's one thing 
I think has been missed out in, in lots of the things about build up to each funeral. Bill Hayden was the bloke who founded Medicare back when he was the health minister initially in the Whitlam government. He designed Medicare and he took enormous abuse from the Conservative parties in the parliament. They declared him to be a socialist for wanting to, to have everybody covered, uh, uh, you know, whereas people should pay their own way, you know, they shouldn't be covered. And he copped enormous abuse, but he got that through the parliament then. As soon as Fraser got in defeating Whitlam, Fraser had scrapped it basically. But then, fortunately, when Bob Hawke got in, he reinstated it under his current name, Medicare. But I think all Australians should remember that the fact we got Medicare now was a, a, a nice, quiet, decent bloke from Ipswich put his head on the block and took enormous abuse to do this way back uh, at that time. Good bloke. I mean, with, with what we were talking about before about the obstacles to constitutional change, again, like it's it's visionaries like that, which we aren't seeing, not just in Australia, I suppose, but worldwide um, yeah. these sorts of days. Um, so you're on a bit of a roll, Ev, so I'll let you hit us with your bad guy as well before I take over. Well, my bad guy is Tony Abbott. Now, now, now it's not um, hard to pick Tony bad guy, but he made another speech somewhere, somewhere which I hope only half a dozen people listen to, where, again, he bagged climate change and reckon we're all a pack of idiots and we're wasting money on the whole thing. And he got headlines all around the world. And I just hope that someone somewhere who knows Tony well, I mean, I know him, but We'll just tell him to grow up or something, you know, like that. How do we handle Tony, mate? I mean, especially going into what looks to be an awful bushfire season countrywide, um, hearing Tony Abbott come out and say, oh, man-made climate change is fake. I never believed in it. It's It just makes you shake your head. <laughs> exactly right. But well, who's your bad guy? Um, look, we're the most exciting podcast in the world, uh, and in recognition of that, my bad guy of the week is Section 36D of the Commonwealth Migration Act. Woohoo! Um, everyone who's listened for the past 30 minutes now gets to hear me talk about legislation. Hooray. <laughs> no. Um, so the High Court this week declared Section 36D of the Migration Act invalid. What it allowed the Minister for Immigration to do was cancel someone's citizenship, not their visa, but revoke their citizenship if they committed certain crimes. The High Court said that's incompatible with the Constitution because only courts can do punishment um, according to findings of guilt. Uh, and the High Court said, if you look through history, like you go to the Roman times and that, the stripping of someone's citizenship is a punishment. Like that's how people were rendered slaves back in ancient Rome as the pinnacle of their justice system. You can't say stripping someone's citizenship is like, uh, anything other than a punitive yeah, measure. Good, good, good That's point. a measure that can only be vested in the courts by its punitive nature. So that was a really atrocious and, um, you know, very scary um, provision of the Migration Act, that if you were a dual citizen, even if you were born here, and that's the craziest part, even if you were born here, lived your entire life here, have no connection back to another country other than birthright citizen, uh, other than your citizenship by your parents, the High Court... Uh, the minister could previously still cancel your Australian citizenship and deport you. Um, so that's out now. So good on the High Court for that. Well, I'm good. And I agree. The High Court did a good job there. And look, I do wish that a few more parts of the of legislation that have been passed by this country might get up before the High Court. That's one example of how 
you know, the fact that we've got an independent high court can yes. fix up some of the nonsense around the place. And that's one thing that we must not... Netanyahu in, 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 in Israel had a referendum passed just before this war in which he curbed uh, the powers of the high court and the Supreme Court of Israel. We must make sure that never happens here. Well, James, that's been a, a, that, that's been a good... Uh, a good discussion and so uh, we'll gear ourselves up for next week we'll be able to talk about how Albo did get on next week uh, you know yes, when he comes yeah. back uh, comes back from time and, yeah. and so uh, have, have a good week and, uh, and and we'll chat again yep I hope Albo brings us and our listeners back some souvenirs um, some good ones and all the best so thanks for listening everyone and see you next week